I'm Liza. And I'm Riz. And you're listening to Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. What did you think about Harry's Halloween costumes? Let's start with Dorothy. Thank God you fucking asked. I thought his Dorothy costume was dumb until I saw his band. So at first I was like, what is he doing wearing a spirit Halloween Dorothy costume? But then when I saw that his whole band was Wizard of Oz, I, they redeemed themselves a little. What did you think about that one? Yeah, I liked that it was a group costume. I thought that was really cute. But I don't know. There were a lot of things that I like didn't like about specifically his costume. Yeah. I didn't yeah. like whoever did his blush. Like, I know that they were going for like, I don't know, the like doll look, you know, where it's really, really dark. But it looked, it just looked wrong. Yeah. They could have did it better. I definitely think he could have had a better Dorothy costume that made. That was my thought. The ladybugs on the costume, I was like, why? Right. It's not Dorothy. No. Harry, come on. Come on, um, And I hated, absolutely hated the red slippers with the, the like, how they went up, but the up part, how they were like ankle boots, but the ankle boot part was police light blue then he had the like super red stockings right I don't know why but it just like rubbed me the wrong it's specifically the blue like the stockings would have been fine Mm -hmm. and everything if if the if that blue color wasn't there but I will say I was obsessed obsessed with the bow yeah that was cute but I I think I liked a lot of his band members costumes more than I liked his costume yeah me too I thought they like I kind of wish he would have been Glinda the only thing I will say is that I guess the Dorothy thing has something to do okay with Larry Stylinson because they used to have like a fake they used to have like a Twitter account that they shared and they would like tweet about Judy Garland all the time I do kind of remember this so if it was gay specifically Larry Silence and Gay, maybe it gets a pass for being kind of atrocious. Highly agreed. What about the clown costume? I loved the clown costume. I liked it. I was a clown for Halloween last year. So obviously I'm a trendsetter and Harry saw my costume and was like, "Mm, I have to do that. And I will also say that with my costume last year, my cat was a lion. Yeah. And so he also probably saw, again, he saw my picture and saw Penelope and was like, oh, we have to do Wizard of Oz. Right. But no, I, since it was COVID and everything, I had to do like more of a tame costume. Right. So I could go to a restaurant and get drunk and Applebee's to be specific. Applebee's. So I didn't want to go full out. By the way, if you've never been to Applebee's for Halloween, is it lit? You don't have to go, but I'm gonna say that their drinks were like pretty freaking good. And aren't they a fucking dollar? I think they were like three dollars. They okay. were they were cheap. The but it was great. Cocktails are like too damn cheap. Like they're trying to kill you a little. Right. But I love it. 
but that was the kind of clown that I wanted to be something like very thrilly something very frilly with like big those circle things on it and like a huge hat so I actually really liked it and I also looking at his whole band I love the colors no I thought that one was sweet I also was the only the only reason I was disappointed was because I had seen a tweet about Harry's costumer looking for male lingerie and so if somebody said oh my god he's gonna be Frank and Furter from Rocky Horror Picture Show and I was gonna I was gonna shit my pants especially because the sound check leaked of him doing medicine and I was like, you're telling me that in a few hours, Harry Styles is going to be dressed as Frankenfurter singing medicine. And I literally like my spirit began to ascend. So then when I saw him that being a clown, no matter how cute it was, I was a little bit sad. I would have cried. Yeah, I know. I would have abs. that would have been what, like, what? oh, wow. What and- more could you want? That would have been iconic. Right. So everyone spam Harry and say he needs to do that next year. He does. He does. He does. If I had a complaint about the, the clown costume, I would say, A, his shoes were so plain. Uh-huh. Yeah. He should have Like them. maybe they should have at least been like black with like stars on it to match his front. And also I wish he would have, he would have wore like a funny hat or something. Yeah. I know, or done makeup, like clown makeup, like just like the, like a little bit. He had like the little triangles, right? But I feel like they could have been darker. Yeah, I think he had little pretties. Yeah. Like little sequins. Yeah. He always could have done more, Harry. That's my problem with him. He never does quite enough for me. You know, I'm always going to want more from him until the day that I die. Exactly. I don't know what to say about that. And that was our, uh, that's our episode. That's our, that's it. That's all you get. It's Harry Styles. Neil Gaiman who? Harry Styles week. It's always Harry Styles week on this podcast. It is. like, And just so everyone's aware, I'm leaving this in. You have to sit through the 10 minutes of us talking about Harry Styles, and I don't care. We don't make fucking rules, besties. So if you don't know, this week's episode is centered around Mr. Neil Gaiman because his birthday was November 10th. Yay! Happy, so late happy birthday. related birthday, Mr. Neil. So in celebration, I read Neil's American Gods. And I read his book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. We both hated it. Both of our <laughs> books. <laughs> we hate Neil. We hate Neil. No, we can't. I think we both actually liked our books pretty much. We were pretty fond of them. Yeah. So I guess Neil passes the vibe check for now. Yes. So if you didn't know, Neil Gaiman was born on November 10th, 1960. Yay. And he is English. He's an English writer, and he's been writing for quite a long time. He has quite a few books. He has quite a few things going on. Um, Books, comics, slash graphic novels, uh, television, movies. I know mine was turned, I know American Gods was turned into a TV 
TV show. Was yours a movie? No. Nothing for Liza yet. No. But but Liza's book is newer than mine. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's getting on 10 years, which is horrifying that 2013 was nearly 10 years ago. Would it make a good movie? I don't think it needs to be a movie, and I think perhaps it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. It was very cool, and I think it could translate to a film, but... It would be one of those books that I would be like, why? So I have actually had no experience with Mr. Meal at all, except for I've seen the movie Coraline, but I've never read it. I haven't read any of his other stuff. I don't think I've seen any other movies based off of his works or anything like that. So I really went into this pretty blind. This was one of my first experiences with his books. Um, So I was telling Marissa that I read the story, which is quite a long story, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is a very cool short story about aliens. I have no recollection of which class I read it in, but I read it for a class. And I have seen Good Omens, the TV show, which I adore. Stardust, the movie, which had, I I used to really like that movie when I was a kid. I can't remember if it's actually for kids. I don't think it is. Um, but I really like like magical fairy, like Renaissance fair type shit. Um, and so that was like a thing that my family watched. And I've also seen Coraline. Yeah. And he's just kind of like a person that you know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I've been new Neil Gaiman, even though this was technically the first novel of his that I have read. Right. I will say, I just remembered another thing of his that I had had experiences with, which is his short story collection, Unnatural Creatures. And it has some of his stuff in it, but it's actually more so he edited it and he picked out the stories that are in it. So it has stories from around the world, different writers from different cultures, and it's a lot of fables and folklore, which is kind of cool. And it just reminded me of that. In the way that King is the king of horror, Neil Gaiman's low-key, like, king of low fantasy. Yes. I wouldn't call his stuff high fantasy by any means, but, like, literally, like, king of low fantasy. Who else even is there doing it like him? I'm very picky about fantasy. Me too. I don't like high fantasy unless it's like no. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Right. And and I think there's quite a few things that Neil does that makes his fantasy bearable, I guess. Yeah. Going back to Coraline, I would say Coraline is is probably his most famous thing, right? Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's like cuz it it is, I don't know about the book, but the movie is definitely geared towards children. It's very whimsical. It's almost, it's definitely spooky. There's something dark about it, but it is light hearted enough to be for kids. Yes. But why do you think like even, like I love Coraline. Yeah. I know adults that love Coraline. Why do you think that is? Well, that's funny that you brought that up because I was going to ask you who you think your book is for. Like what age group? Because yeah, Coraline feels like it's for kids but it is also very much for adults. I saw it for the first time when I was a kid. Fun fact, 
Coraline is the first movie I ever saw in 3D and I was shook. I was like, holy shit. That perhaps exposes that we're like a little bit old because they, I don't even know if they make 3D movies anymore. I feel like kids like a little bit younger than us to a certain age are like, how was that? How do you remember the first 3D movie? Whereas kids today are like, I never even seen a 3D movie because I don't think they're really doing that anymore. Right. I remember being in the movie theater and being like, oh my God, Um, that was crazy. So, but yeah, I feel like any book that has some level of whimsy to it feels like it can be for kids, like you said. But also sometimes it's really like only adults are truly going to like get it. Coraline, like when I watched that when I was a kid, I was just kind of the visuals and everything about it I loved. But I haven't seen it in a while, but I feel like if I was to like rewatch it as a child, I mean, as an adult, you think about it more. Well, like other mother and other, the people on the other side are like so weird. I don't know. And so that's why I was wanting to ask you too about like, who do you think your age group is with your book? Because with mine, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, I think it is a book for adults. And I think it's a book that adults will get a little bit more. But all of that being said, it's about kids. It's very kind of like whimsical and like a fable, like, because I think that's his thing. The other thing I realized about it when I was researching it was there's a schmoop for it. And there is classroom questions at the back. So I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. I think he's kind of writing for everybody. But I also Mm -hmm. think all of his books, have, all of his stuff has like weird lessons. Because this book definitely has, I don't even know. It's kind of like a lesson, I guess. And Coraline feels that way too. So I was, I know American, I thought you would decide to read Neverwhere. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear more about American Gods. But I, I, I wondered if Neverwhere was kind of like for uh could go either way for kids or for adults um but i'm sure american gods is a different tale american gods is definitely for adults there's about three or four sex scenes just within the first 100 pages christ neil which like like in my opinion they all pretty much have their place and they make sense why they they exist but it still like very much took me off guard. And I was like, is this what this whole book is going to be? No. Um, so yeah, mine is definitely geared towards adults. And I will say, you know, I think that there's definitely a couple lessons that you can learn from this book, but it's not in the way that like the Coraline lesson kind of is, mm-hmm. or like any tale that you would tell a child. Like it's it's much more just in the way that like, a book will give you a lesson, if that makes sense. Totally, totally. Something much like Coraline, I think. There's a lot of symbolism in this book and kind of references to references to past things or fables or mythology, kind of, which I definitely think he does that left and right. Yeah, I think that's happening in my book, too. And I just think he must be that type of guy that he's like always kind of doing that every single one, because like Good Omens is about the rapture. And it's like an angel and a demon. And Stardust is very mythological. Sandman. He does he has some- a book on Norse gods. So yeah. I mean, yeah, like he's like doing this thing where he's like reinventing myths. 
which might be part of the reason why there's always like a lesson because mm-hmm. myths were originally to teach you a lesson. The other thing that jumped into my head w- was that, um, you know how we're always talking about ha- wanting to have an episode of the podcast. I think Lindsay sent this to me, but you, I think said, I want Lindsay. an episode that's about modern books that we think will become classics. Lindsay that's familiar. Yeah. Lindsay maybe sent it to both of us or we like had a discussion about it before, yeah. but this book, I think is probably like that. I can so see reading it in high school. And I think that's probably why there's discussion questions in the back and probably why there's like a schmoop and a spark notes of it, which you don't usually find with regular books. I'm trying to think of like what it like could remind me of like anything about like friendship or like coming of age. I don't know if you would need to read a separate piece anymore or something if you have this which is like it's obviously different because it's Neil Gaiman but it's like I can see why you would teach this in a high school classroom and I think Good Omens is already on its way to becoming a I don't even know if it's science fiction but like a fantasy classic yeah that's just interesting that here's a guy that rewrites fables that teach you a lesson and they also are the types of books that you're like yeah in 25 years that's going to be in the classic section with, you know, Great Gatsby and what have you. It's also interesting, or I guess it's it's encouraging to, obviously, Neil is someone who, if you're writing about this stuff, you have to be well-versed or educated or know about it in some way. And so I'm, I'm assuming that this is something he probably liked to read about and he enjoyed it and he read all this different mythology and things about the gods and fables and tales and all this other stuff. And then he was like, Hey, I could also do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's pretty encouraging, especially to younger people to be like, Hey, write what, you know, write what you're interested in. Like you don't need, you don't need to be Stephen King having crazy dreams and crazy experiences to write a book you you could simply just be interested in something and you want to tell it your way and I think that's totally okay the other thing with that too is it's interesting because he is doing this is another thing we kind of wanted to talk about that he's doing such weird shit like Neil Gaiman is the definition of that like Lady Gaga quote where it's like one of a kind completely original never the same like his stuff is all generally the same we'll call it low fantasy and he is basing his shit off of bold shit but like what a freak the monsters in this book are insane other mother is one of the like and the whole other world and Coraline craziest shit I ever seen good omens it's about the rapture but it's wild American God sounds like it's totally weird even how to talk to girls at parties it's like about aliens he does go into magical realism instead of low fantasy sometimes he does go into high fantasy I think sometimes I think neverwhere might be high fantasy or close I think it's close to it, yeah. And then how to talk to girls at parties, of course, is science fiction. I think some of his comments, and here, another example, he writes comics, like he does comics, he does children's books. He writes for Doctor Who. He's like, I can do it. Like, he's like, I'll do something weird and you'll like it. And that's just cool that he is like a, a, an original guy. And we do, we do like it. We eat it up. I'll go first this week. So I read, like I said, American Gods, by Neil Gaiman and pretty much the main character is named Shadow. He's been in jail 
for three years and he gets out, finds out that his wife has been, has died. And he immediately gets offered a job where he's told he's going to transport this guy. If anyone threatens him or tries to be, tries to, I don't know, fight him, he's going to protect the guy and he's going to do errands for him, all this other stuff. And, you know, thinking his wife is dead and he has nothing else really to do, he agrees. And it kind of puts him into this spinning world of, well, American gods. <laughs> so um, pretty much any god that has ever been worshipped or believed in in any way can take actual human form. And Shadow gets to meet quite a bit of them. And there's a lot of mysteries along the way. There's a lot of weird things happening. And I will say for the most part of the book, you are just as clueless as Shadow. And it doesn't feel, it's not a bad thing at all. It feels fine. Um, for readability, I give this a seven. Now I'm going to say, I got the edition of this book that is the author's edition, which means this is pretty much what Neil wrote that his editor didn't cut. This is his full writing. Nothing was cut from it. It's exactly how he wants it to be. And so I believe that this is about 20,000 words longer than the edited originally published version. So I kind of uh, did myself in a little bit with that. But because of that, this book is 500 plus pages. It's big. It's daunting. We, me and Eliza were comparing fonts and pages before. And her writing in her book is small, but mine is super, super tiny. And it's also, let me, so there are 39 lines of writing on one page which is a lot the the font's small the writing is really packed on the page but it never felt like it was just like going on and on and on it never felt boring to me I was interested in what was happening next I think in a different situation this could have been a binge book because again like I said you do want to know what's going on the the content is quite cool but I've just been super busy lately. It's been really hard for me to get like fully immersed into a book. But I definitely think on a different occasion, it would have been a binge book. For language and style, I gave it an 8.5. I think Neil definitely has a distinct style, which I also, I want to compare. I'm interested to see what Eliza is going to say um, about the style in her book, especially because my book was published in 2001. Her book was published in 2013. So that's 12 years apart. A lot can change in that time. A lot can change in that time. I don't know if it has. It probably didn't, but it would be interesting to see either way. Okay, so I just wanted to read a quick example of Neil's style from my book. So this is page 99 in my book. Uh, if that helps anyone out, probably not, but... He knew, rationally, that he had nothing to do with the snow, just as he knew the silver dollar he carried in his pocket was not and never had been the moon. So that was one sentence. 
I'm going to give you another example on the same page, um, but about two paragraphs down. The ambience that Wednesday loved, it turned out, once lunch had been eaten, Shadow had the fried chicken and enjoyed it, was the business that took up the rear of the shed. It was the hanging flag across the center of the room announced a bankrupt and liquidated stock clearance depot. That's one sentence. So if you get what I'm trying to show you, uh, Neil writes these really long, complex sentences. They're very much packed with things. Uh, they've got M dashes, I think. I don't know my dashes, but they got dashes. So the sentences will have dashes that like split up things, lots of commas, lots of almost asides. Um, so I want to read that sentence again, but I'm going, is it, as annoying as this might be, I'm going to read the punctuation also. The ambience that Wednesday loved, comma, it turned out, comma, once lunch had been eaten, dash, shadow had fried chicken, comma, and enjoyed it, dash, was the business that took up the rear of the shed, colon, it was, comma, the hanging flag across the center of the room announced, comma, a bankrupt and liquidated stock clearance depot, period. So it's a, they, he has really, really packed sentences. And this, it was like this all throughout the book. I definitely think that these long, uh, complex sentences are an interesting part of his style. And I've never seen them done the way that he does it. I personally found these sentences a little bit hard to follow. Like my brain would literally have to read them a few times to understand what exactly he was trying to say. And I think that that could be part of the reason why it took me so long to get through this book. So I'm going to omit the form. The book was split up into parts, which was split up into chapters. And occasionally dispersed between chapters, there would be another section that was like a chapter, but it didn't count as a chapter. And it would be called like, coming to America or something like that. And it would be the story of how one of the gods came to America. So it diverted from the main storyline and instead focused on stories of the gods coming to America, whether it was pilgrim traveling from Puritan England and forced to come here in most cases and them bringing the beliefs that they had or um, someone being bought and sold and being forced to come here from the slave passage, told through stories. There was a lot of interesting things. As long as even a little tiny belief was held, then the gods followed. And that's how the gods came to America. Very interesting, but I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't really call it um, any different kind of form. For Shelfworthy, I gave this a seven. I think this book deserves a two-time read. You would probably get a lot more out of this book if you were more versed in different mythologies than I am, but I'm not at all. I still did find little Easter eggs that kind of came back from things in the beginning, um, and I love my Easter eggs, so that was really enjoyable to me. I think that this book is Shelfworthy, and I am happy that I'm going to have it. But I can also see the appeal of maybe borrowing it. I do not think that Neil really needs, he doesn't need you to buy his book. I mean, would he like you to? Yeah, but he doesn't really need it. 
you could probably buy a book written by a Native American author for Native American Heritage Week. And uh, then you could borrow Neil's book from your local library because it's important to support our libraries. But that's on you. You know, as me and Liza were talking about in the beginning, I do not think that this book will become a classic in the way that The Great Gatsby or Little Women or something like that is a classic. I think I would compare this book more to, okay, if Stephen King's books such as The Shining, that's a classic. Carrie, that's probably a classic. I would say that while Eliza's book would be one of Neil's classics, mine would fall more into maybe like The Stand, where I see The Stand getting a kind of cult following, but I never see The Stand walking into classic territory, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, that's how I feel about that. For plot, I gave this book an eight. The plot is super, super interesting. He really evokes the essence of America, which is so interesting to me because he's an English writer writing about America, but it works. There's a lot of weird things that as you're reading them, you're almost like, why is he putting this in the book? Me and Eliza talked about this. I can't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago about how you usually don't mention the name of something like you don't do brands i think we said you would never say like oh she's wearing converse no it would be she's wearing sneakers um unless it's extremely important to the plot in a specific way and this had tons of like branding in it he was talking about mcdonald's um he specifically mentioned the i guess the year and the model of cars that were being driven, certain local foods, names of gas stations. I was like, why is why can't you just say we stopped at the gas station? Why does he have to say we stopped at this gas station at this street and it's called this? Like I thought that was so weird. But then I thought about it and he's like that kind of like capitalism is is America, unfortunately. These weird gas stations, these weird diners, that very much is America. One of the cars that's driven towards the end is one of those Volkswagen buses from like the 1960s. And that is so American. In the weirdest way, it's like you see that. And even if you don't know you're thinking about America, you're thinking about America. And it's just, it's so interesting how that's something that writers are like, oh, we can't, we can't mention these things and like, we got to be really careful, whatever. But he truly did it in the way that it was constantly important to the story. And I really applaud him for that. I thought that was really cool. I also love that we're getting all of these people of kind of ancient myths and we're getting to see them act like how they would act in the modern world. Oh, something that's, there were like a lot of little things that I could tell were references to other things that really stuck out to me. And something notable that I think both Liza and our sleepy readers might find particularly interesting is when our main character, Shadow, first sees the god as god, he climbs onto a carousel and it's the oldest carousel in the world and he rides it and it takes, and that's how he sees the gods, which is 
there's our something wicked reference. This book is also filled with so much symbolism, um, references to America. It's not like, oh, like the symbolism feels pretentious or anything like that. I think it's worked really well and it feels right for this book, a book about gods. And there is a lot of symbolism in worshiping um, and things like that. So to have so much packed into this book, you know, I think Neil, he, he did a good job. Mr. Neil did. Also, fun fact, a lot of the places in this book are real places that Neil drove through or he stayed at. Um, and most of them you also can go and stay at. And there's this one little town, I believe it's called Lakeside. Oh, and they have this thing. I don't know if this is a real thing or not. Someone please tell me. It's called a pasty, I believe. And it, and it sounds so friggin' good. Someone please let me know so that me and Liza can drive all the way to like close to Montana or something. Dakota, maybe. One of the Dakotas. I don't know. We need to drive somewhere and get a pasty because it sounded so delicious. Um, for characterization, I give this an eight. The way he works the gods, it's pretty damn cool. This is the only reference that's coming to me. So I'm going to apologize in advance because it's a really, really corny one. And it's a horrible example, but let's just do it. If you've seen the movie yesterday, <laughs> there's this point at the end where John Lennon is there and he's just a normal dude. There's something about that where it's like, it's cool to see this famous person who's often portrayed as like a larger than life figure, but he's acting normally and he's part of this normal world. Um, and that's almost how it feels with the gods. But it's a little bit exciting to see these gods as humans in the modern world, doing modern day things and how they play tricks on people the way that they get their money how they steal things the way they get people to the way they trick people into worshiping them still so that they're not forgotten it's all very very interesting and again i'm sure that i would have got more out of it if i knew more about them but i still really into it and i guess the other characters who are not gods they usually had little unique things about them they were charming even the gods are just so charming it's like i know it has been told to me that this is the god of like death and trickery and weird things like that but for some reason like I love him and he's so funny he's goofy and I'm seeing him interact with his friends in a normal setting as they're just like drinking some beers it's so cool yeah that's that's about all I have to say about that so I'm gonna pass the mic over to Liza through the computer because we're not together hello this book sounds so good it is I think you would like it I think I would too, and I like it. I like everything that you were saying, and I like that it reminds me of the Good Omens TV show, and I know that there's a good, there's an American Gods TV show like you. I will say one funny thing that reminded me was all of the talk of the American stuff, and like, so that kind of reminded me, I think there's a charm to, a charm and a criticism of America that foreign authors have and the way you were just talking about him like mentioning all the gas stations and the mcdonald's and this that and the other and the volkswagen like reminded me of murakami loves to do that 
he even has a book where that what Colonel Sanders is an entire character. Beautiful. Um, and I think that he really like is kind of enamored with American culture, but his biggest thing is that he's like critiquing late stage capitalism. And so it's just funny that here we have another foreign author who's kind of doing the same thing. Yes. Maybe not, but people think of America and you would think of like big cities like New York and LA. But in this book, it's really interesting. I don't, they talk about Chicago. Don't think they never, they ever go there. They don't go to LA. They went to Vegas like once, but it wasn't like nothing about it was really described except that there were slot machines in the airport. Um, I think that this is like the kind of book that you really have to think about the way he does everything because slot machines in the airport like that means something um and most of this book they're in very rural areas they're in like middle america it feels like places that i feel as though i would never i think of american i don't think of that but maybe people do like maybe the wizard of oz like kansas you know what i mean Another thing that I can also see him doing, I was talking about these coming to America sections where it explained how the God got there. And I feel like there's almost something that's like, because you bought people as slaves and shipped them to America, now there's this God to worship. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like a cause and effect type thing. I think that there there's a good diving into almost these big sections of American history, kind of, like slaves, Native Americans, the Puritan Englands getting sent here, America being like a castaway place for people. Because there are these big sections, but he takes little moments about them, and it, it almost feels like it's something, I don't want to say like it's something bad, but it's like it's some kind of punishment or consequence or something. But... I think he's also doing that to kind of show a blending because this lady came from, from Ireland, this from England, this from uh, Africa, this person was already here. This one came from uh, specifically Egypt because there's all these like different people from different places. You have this like weird blending of gods and it feels very American, how America is kind of just like a hodgepodge of people, even though it's people don't act like it is, but it is. I don't know. Very interesting. Yeah, different thing, similar, different, very different, my book. Um, but as we said, similar vibe of fable and myth and lessons and criticisms in the ocean at the end of the lane. Um, like Marissa said, this book is newer. It was written in 2013, which feels like yesterday, but apparently was quite a long time ago. This book, the premise is that the narrator, um, who's an older guy, 
returns to, uh, he, he's attending a funeral and he doesn't really want to go. I think he doesn't really want to like associate really with the people at the funeral. So he goes on a drive to his old house, which has since been like bulldozed and doesn't exist anymore. But the farm at the end of the lane exists um, where there is also a pond that it's called the ocean at the end of the lane. And it's because the little girl, Letty Hemstock, who lived in that farmhouse, thought the pond was an ocean. Hence the title, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And when he arrives there and is sitting at this pond slash ocean, he starts to have this, recall his time spent in this place. And from then, then until the epilogue, it's essentially all flashback. So it's him and he doesn't have a lot of friends and his parents are not doing well. They um, have come. I don't know when this is supposed to take place because I know that England did have some sort of financial crisis at one point, specifically with like, I think like coal miners and stuff. Like, I know they had like some hard times back in maybe it was like the 80s. So maybe that's when he was growing up, although it feels like it might be a little older. I like I said, I'm not entirely sure, but that honestly could be what the financial hardship is referring to. And so to make money, they start letting people come stay in their house. Um, and one of which is a, is a opal miner, sorry, from Africa. And that guy, not spoilers, because this is kind of the inciting incident, kills himself. And that causes the little boy to meet Letty Hempstock, who lives at the end of the road, because that's where the guy kind of decided to end his life uh, in that little area of town. And that's why him and Letty kind of become friends. And then really strange things start to happen to him that she seems to kind of know about, and her mom seems to know about, and her grandma seems to know about. And then there's these strange creatures, and one of them, which the grandma refers to as a flea opens a doorway and comes into this world. And she like tricks people into thinking that she's like a regular person. And so she becomes a new boarder in the house and takes the room that the dead guy was living in and sort of kind of becomes like a impromptu babysitter. Um, but she's quite evil and kind of reminds me of the other mother from Coraline. And she's just like awful. And she does all these things and she can kind of possess people and cause them to do awful things. It's all around not a good time. And so like with the other strange things that have happened, Letty and Ginny, her mom and the grand have to help the little boy kind of figure out how to get rid of this woman. Um, and so there more magic is kind of brought in um, and there's like other dimensions and like you you realize that Letty and Ginny and Gran are like not necessarily people. They're sort of like these higher beings. And I, I did I didn't think of this at first, but then I saw it in the back of the book and I was like, that makes so much sense that they're kind of meant to represent the maiden, the mother and the crone, um, which is a piece of like classic folklore and mythology, but also like religion in terms of witchcraft. So that's kind of who they're supposed to represent. But either way, um, they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of this woman. And that is really the climax of the book. And so I won't say anything more than that in terms of the summary. But to get into the chart for readability, I gave this book a six. Read it. It's a good read. I'll kind of get into this maybe a little bit when I get into form, maybe, but it is very short. It's 176 pages and it's 
therefore may be considered a novella. I'm not sure what the criteria is for a novella versus a novel, but it was one of the, I think we've had this conversation before, maybe with Karen Russell, where we were like, I'm not sure what's really going on here because I think it could have been shorter. Like it sounded like sleep donation could have been a short story. And I feel like perhaps this book could have been a short story, like a long one, but a short story, but I'm not mad about it. Like I read the, I read it. I thought it was good. I think you can read it. I think there's no point in not reading it because um, it's only 176 pages, but the only reason I gave it like a, a six for readability instead of like, a seven or a nine was that like it it didn't have the same effect on me as like Marissa even though she didn't have the chance to because of like the kind of week she had said that American Gods would have been a binge book this just like you can finish it in one sitting because it's short not because you need to by any means um but it's a good book in terms of style I do really like Neil Gaiman's style and so I gave this book a seven for that First of all, I really like his dialogue. I just think it's really wonderful and it feels very real. And I'll get into that a little bit more when probably with characterization. But yeah, he plays with words really well. And, you know, it's easy to read too, which I th- I'm always just a fan of. Like we were kind of talking about this at the beginning too, that like, I think this book is for like high schoolers as well as adults. And so I think it's always nice when the language is just not gatekeepy. Um, Cause nobody fucking wants that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think his, his language is clean. There's a few places I really liked and like, I think his language is good, but I think it's mostly the plot that is so like, it's mostly like what's happening that makes his writing so good than the actual language itself. But that being said, like the language is really good. Let me jump to this one part that has good dialogue. I'm going to read like a kind of big section just because I really liked this page. I shook my head. I bet you don't actually even look like that. I said, not really. Letty shrugged. Nobody actually looks like what they really are on the inside. You don't. I don't. People are much more complicated than that. It's true of everybody. I said, are you a monster? Like Ursula Mokton? Letty threw a pebble into the pond. I don't think so, she said. Monsters come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are things people are scared of. Some of them are things that look like things people used to be scared of a long time ago. Sometimes monsters are things people should be scared of, but they aren't. I said, people should be scared of Ursula Moncton? Perhaps. What do you think Ursula Moncton is scared of? Dunno. Why do you think she's scared of anything? She's a grown-up, isn't she? Grown-ups and monsters aren't scared of things. Oh, monsters are scared, said Letty. That's why they're monsters. And as for grown-ups, she stopped talking, rubbed her freckled nose with a finger. Then, I'm going to tell you something important. Grown-ups don't look like grown-ups on the inside either. Outside, they're big and thoughtless, and they always know what they're doing. Inside, they look just the way they always have, like they did when they were your age. The truth is, there aren't any grown-ups, not one in the whole wide world. She thought for a moment, then she smiled, except for Granny, of course. So that's just an example of like really beautiful dialogue and just I think gives you a feel for his style throughout this entire story. And there's, you know, more moments like that, too, that just kind of stuck out for me for that reason. For form, I had a similar kind of feeling as Marissa. I was like, I think I don't know if I'm going to admit it or not. 
but I gave it a five because like I said, like, I don't know. Like I said, I think this book is good, but like, I'm like kind of a little bit confused about if it should have been a short story or what's going on. And the form was just very basic, just chapter by chapter, like nothing really interesting was happening in terms of that. There was like things that I liked about it. Like, first of all, sometimes I don't like stuff in past tense. So I think that maybe, or I don't like stuff in past first person past tense. So he's saying like, I said, and I don't know why I was like, what could have been different about that? Cause it was a flashback, but could it have still been in the present tense? Even if it was a flashback, uh, what, what could have happened there? That wasn't as much a critique as just something I was thinking about, but like, I love this one part in the book towards the end where he says a ghost memory rises here, a phantom moment, a shaky reflection in the pool of remembrance. And so this is an interjection from present day narrator that I think was really cool. And I wish there was more of that because I think that would have been way more interesting in terms of the form than having just like a prologue and epilogue and one big flashback. He did have these side thoughts, but nothing like this where it's like in italics and in parentheses, like that just would have been cool to have like actually like a good deal of that. So that's the only reason I was like, oh, maybe I'll just keep this section because our our five is kind of that like the form needs work. And like, there's nothing wrong with this. It is fine as it is, but like, I feel like there's, you know, that could have been cool. So that was my thoughts on that. In terms of shelfworthiness, I also gave this book a five. I think you should read it, but I definitely like Marissa's idea of taking it out from the library. Um, Neil doesn't really need your money, besties. Support your local library. Um, this is like the perfect book to do that with because I don't think you ever really need to read it again unless you just like love it, which I think some people probably really do. Um, but yeah, this is a, a perfect moment for one of those books that's just like, hey, take it out from the library, borrow it from a, from a friend, and then you can steal it if you want. <laughs> um, not from the library, from your friend. Do not steal from the library. Um, they need those books <laughs> for plot. I gave this book a seven. I really liked... I, I thought the monsters and the magic in this book was really weird. And it was like kind of random, which I really liked. And I always like like witchy kind of vibes. And this definitely had that. The thing I really liked about this book is the thing I want to keep calling it, which I think should be a genre in the same way like Odysseys should be a genre, that there should be a genre that's just called a return or the return. Because I think the this uh, thing that happens in books sometimes of the main character returning to their hometown is so interesting. And I think I like that a lot because I do that myself. And I think a return, it just offers space for so much exploration. And I do like that in this book, the return took the form of a flashback to children um, because children have such a different perspective on things than adults do. Um, and I just think that's part of the reason, like, even though this book is actually quite sad at times, um, and dark, that it's also very sweet. And I think that's kind of where the lessons come from, too. That's like, looking at a situation from a child's eyes instead of an adult. And there's this one part, like, I'm going to talk about, but again, I don't want to, like, spoil it. But they're just talking about how, like, two people will never remember one thing the same way. And this person maybe remembered things very different from the way that they actually were, but the other person they're talking to maybe like remember things differently too. And I think that also happens 
when you're an adult, because there's this whole thing that like adults kind of don't see what kids see. And so it's like, even as an adult, is he even remembering these events properly? Because there's like a part of you that kind of like goes away when you're an adult and that you're never going to get it back. So are you ever going to remember that kind of magic the same way? Um, and I think, I don't know, it's up to the reader, I think, to because that part, that conversation at the end about how we remember things like is a little bit trippy because you're like, wait, then what happened? Like, did I just read the truth at all? But I think you can kind of decide that. And so I like that aspect of it too. I don't know. Like I said, I just love this concept of a return. The plot of this book feels nostalgic, even though I don't really necessarily relate to it, like relate to anything that was happening. Like it doesn't even necessarily look like the place I grew up, but at the same time, it, we all have these weird blurry memories of magic things, I guess. Or we all go back to our hometowns and be like, this place is so different than what I used to think of it, for better or for worse. So I don't know. I just love that. I guess we could call it a trope, but I think genre is like a better way to look at it. And so I like that Neil Gaiman like took a moment to do that. I don't know if he does that a lot. He does do that like child like whimsy a lot, like we were saying, like with Coraline. But yeah, I also think you have this just like occurred to me that like, you always have to wonder when somebody's writing about like a return to a hometown, if they this was their based on their own experiences, because I think that would be really interesting kind of to think about too. not obviously saying that everything that happened in this book happened to Neil Gaiman, because I would be like implicating I don't that that's his life. Um, but I just wondered if this like idea of uh, some of the ideas in the book were drawn from his real hometown or something like that, which I always love to see. Like I said, I do that quite frequently. I want to get back to like this weird idea we have of like lessons, because like I said, like the people in this, this can go into characters too, that just like the people in this book just say really profound things. Um, so there's two quotes. I'll just read the old woman guffawed as if I had said the funniest thing in the universe. Nothing's ever the same. She said, be it a second later or a hundred years, it's always churning and rolling and people change as much as oceans, which is like a little bit cheesy, but also like, like such a message. And that's why I was like, I actually really wonder if this book is a classic, classic, classic. Whereas you were saying American Gods isn't a classic in the same way that some classics are classics. I really am starting to think like this actually is going to be a classic. And then um, here's just, um, I'll read it because I don't think it spoils anything. Old Mrs. Hempstock shrugged. What you remember? Probably, more or less. Different people remember things differently. And you'll not get any two people to remember anything the same, whether they were there or not. You stand two of you lot next to each other, and you could be continents away from all it means anything. Um, which is just kind of a weird speech pattern, too. But yeah, there's just like, he's like, okay, here's a nugget of knowledge for you. Which I think we forget sometimes, too, that books are supposed to teach you eternal truths. That's the point technically. And I hate to say like, that's the point because I'm always like, why can't you just read a book to read a book? Like 
you can read a book and not have any clue what the fuck just happened and still be having a good time or not learn anything from it. I think um, we do have that conversation. That's like, you have to have changed by the end of the book, but I think there's a difference between having have changed and having have learned. But if we go back to the point of books, it is to learn an eternal truth. Um, and I think it's a big, big deal to tell, say that like fiction teaches you eternal truths just as much as not, if not more than nonfiction, um, because some people will try to tell you that fiction is a waste of time when it's fucking not. But yeah, that's like, I don't know. He did that in this book uh, and he took the moment to do that. And I think he's always kind of doing that. Um, so shout out to Neil for sticking to the basics and saying, learn us something from this. And then in terms of characterization, I gave this book a seven as well. I really liked, I thought the characters in this book were really interesting. I, like I said, I thought the monsters were very strange. Um, Ursula is very strange. And then there's these other creatures, which I don't really want to spoil, but they're quite scary. There's this one part, I don't even want to read it because I think you should just like maybe read it. I'll just, uh, I'll tell you what they're called because I think you can find this online. They're called the hunger birds. And that's just like, what? Like, that's so scary. And like, there's this part where they're talking and it's really weird. And like their laughter is described as very strange. And it's just like, like weird. Honestly, some of the horror in this book kind of reminds me of Marissa. Like there's this part where he like pulls up, this isn't a spoiler. He like coughs up a coin. He like pulls a worm out of his foot. It's like weird. Ooh. And that's why I'm like, it's low fantasy really hinging on. I mean, if there weren't the hunger birds and the interdimensional portals, I would call this book magical realism. But just because of that, I was like, let's just go with um, low fantasy. Yeah. So anyway, the monsters are very weird. The family life of this boy feels very realistic. He feels quite realistic. He's kind of like a loner, kind of like sensitive little boy. And then, yeah, quite sad. And then I thought Letty is incredible. Like, I love this character. She's a little girl, but she is so wise. Um, And you'll kind of like, if you read the book, you'll kind of start to understand a little that a little bit more, I think. But she just says the wackiest shit. But she's, yeah, she's so vibrant and her mom and her grandma are so vibrant as well. And she's the main like bearer of the eternal truths in this book. And I think what a thing to have a child doing that. And she just says weird shit. And I just always like characters that do that. Um, Yeah, I feel like we talk about this a lot. Like what happens when a book is character driven versus plot driven? And this was really one of those where I was like, so many magical things were happening that it feels like it would be plot driven. But I just truly feel like it's it's definitely a mix of plot and character. But this was, one, again, one of those books where I was like, the characters were just like too cool. Like it feels more like a character driven book, even though quite a bit of plot um, for such a short book. I'll compare it to like, I've read three really short books recently. We've Always Lived in the Castle, Savage Conversations, and this. We've Always Lived in the Castle, not a ton of plot, totally character-driven. Savage Conversations, totally character-driven. This is the closest to being more plot-driven. And I remember you saying that too with Karen Russell, which was a very short book, felt too plot-driven. It was like, but also not enough at the same time, but like that was the main fault with that book. I feel like Neil 
did this very well where he had such a short book and was like, no, you can do both because sometimes it feels like perhaps you can't just given the example that we've had a few books that were totally character driven and a, one, a few books that were totally plot driven. The, these being books on the shorter novella side of things. But yeah, all around good book. I would read it, especially if you just have like nothing really to do. Like we said, like if you just like are like want to go to the library to pick out a book, like literally just get this one because it'll take you a day to read, if not less, or you could spread it out and just vibe. And it's like, there's no point in not doing it. So those are my thoughts on Mr. Gaiman. I don't know. One thing I really like about when we both read different books from the same author is that I like comparing them. Simple as that. I like seeing how the style changes, how the plot changes, because it, it is... I think as a writer, it is easy to be like, okay, I wrote this one story this way and it worked. So now I should do the same thing because it worked. And I appreciate that he, that Mr. Neal isn't doing that. That's it. That's it. Happy birthday, Mr. Damon. He's a god somehow. He is. He's got something going on. Like he maybe made a deal with the devil. We don't know. He could have. He's got a lot of books out. I know. He's prolific, um, but not in like in a way that I believe him. Yeah. Not, go, like a, not James Patterson. No. <laughs> Everyone go read about his wedding because it was interesting. Oh, yeah. Also polyamorous, perhaps, icon. Yes. Oh, go, King. And we did switch up our schedule a little bit, but it won't make a difference to you guys because you guys didn't know what our schedule was going to be. Right. But it makes a difference to us. So that's why I just said it. But Eliza, would you like to announce next week? Next week. For those who don't know, November is memoir month, which is kind of fun. So for next week's episode, we will be each reading a memoir. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am reading Tastes Like War by Grace M. Cho. Um, who is a Korean author. It's part memoir, part, I think, food memoir. Like, I think she has Korean recipes interweaved into her memoir, which feels very, very cool because memoirs are something that can be so personal. And food, specifically traditional food from your culture, is so personal so I'm very excited about that and for me next week I will be reading The Men We Reaped a memoir by Jasmine Ward I'm very excited yay I'm excited too that's what we're going to be doing next week and we're both very excited and I don't really think we've got anything else to tell you nothing else to announce just make sure you're keeping an eye on our socials so you could see all of our beautiful book covers because my no gaming book is interesting. And if you don't know, pretty much you could follow us anywhere, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter at LSMR Podcast. And we're, mm-hmm. half, we're over halfway through our first season of LSMR Podcast. Ah, that's crazy. Twenty-seven more episodes in this season. So if you haven't been following us this whole time, what the heck have you been doing? What are you up to? Okay. <laughs> what is going on? But yeah, 
we're super excited about literally every episode we have to do. And we hope that you guys keep reading with us. See you next time. See you. dating you for your cat it was the cat and that's it you gotta do what you gotta do